0: One of the popular TV programs in the 1960s was called Mission Impossible. Remember this? Anybody old enough here to remember this? It was about um, international and domestic espionage. And it was, it was iconic for all sorts of reasons. For example, it always started with the very same soundtrack and a fuse being lit across the television scene, or screen. And you just uh, you immediately felt like a spy when you heard that music, didn't you? In fact, I know what you're thinking. I'm a trained biblical counselor. I can read your mind. You want to hear a little bit of that song, don't you? <laughs> I won't disappoint. That bring back memories for anybody? That's back when television was television, Right? That's before, and you youngins won't believe this, that's before televisions even had a remote. That, that's why parents had children back in those days to change the channels. We thought we were hot stuff when the remote came out, huh? But, but you remember, some of you remember that uh, program. There was also a, a, a tape recorder and, and sometimes an envelope of, of pictures that described the villains that needed to be addressed. And those enemies were usually described as being outside the reach of conventional law enforcement. And the mission was usually to to neutralize them in some way, which was a polite way of saying they need killing and the government can't uh, officially do it. You may also remember that the the main characters at least supposedly had the option uh, of rejecting the assignment. So the opening scene said something like, your mission, Jim... What came next? Yes, should you, some of you remember, should you choose to accept it. Did did they ever reject it? Nah, I think we're going to pass on that one. Uh, Of course not. Then there would be this ominous warning. As always, should you or any of your I am force be caught or killed, that the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. And they never told us who the secretary was, right? (laughs) That could have been the office secretary. Who knows? Do you remember how the introductory segment always ended? This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. And if you said, wait a minute, I thought it was ten. Actually, if you research that, there were some times where they said five and sometimes where they said ten. By the way, speaking of research, in the extensive research I did for this introduction which included a full 15 minutes worth of reading on the Internet, I I learned that in the beginning they actually had one of the actors that they would pour a chemical on the cassette tape and then blow on it. They didn't do that very long because later they had smoke coming up out of the cassette tape. You know why that was? That was to save money. Apparently that chemical cost too much money and so they tried to save money by using smoke instead they also switched think about where the bean counters came into this. They switched that they had foreign locations at first, but they became more and more domestic. That was to save money. So we're not going to have them in Paris anymore. We're going to Sea Caucus, New Jersey. That's where the next program is going to be. The bean counters always win, don't they? They always do. Well, part of what made the show so successful. What was there was no question about the mission. You knew within minutes exactly what they were supposed to accomplish. But, but then the issue was always, how in the world would they do it? Because after all, it was, a, it was a mission impossible. Well, that's one of the many characteristics, I think, of the church of Jesus Christ, for which people like you and me should be very, very thankful. Our Lord and Savior has not left us in the dark about our mission. It's clearly articulated in multiple places in the Word of God. And it's also not just clear, it's also significant. So it's not like the God of heaven and earth is out doing important things, so He needs us to handle a few minor, unimportant details. No, no, no. Our mission is His mission, and His is ours, at least if we want it to be. What that means is we're called to live and function in such a way that we're participating in accomplishing God's plan, God's will, God's desires in His world. And when we pause and think about that, we have to conclude that that is an incredible trust. That's an incredible stewardship. And that's what we want to focus on this morning, the stewardship So, with that in mind, please open your Bible now to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 this morning. So, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. It's on page 26 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you if you need that this morning. Our theme this year has been hope for everyday life. You know, that too is a high calling because there's plenty of reasons this side of heaven for despair. Plenty of reasons for discouragement. We could illustrate that in all sorts of ways. Think about how the stock market's doing right now. <laughs> There's a little bit of despair. Think about what's happening around our world. Think about domestic politics. And then on top of that, you undoubtedly have your own private concerns, things maybe nobody else even knows about right now. And yet you lump all of that together together. And yet you have passages of Scripture like this. Now, now may the God of hope, there it is, the, the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So hopefully by this point in the year you could say you're, you're seeing that theme lived out practically in everyday life in your heart and in your life, that in Christ and His Word you're finding hope. You're finding hope for everyday life. Well, today is the beginning of Stewardship Month, so not surprisingly, we're going to organize these messages around the the stewardship of our hope. Now, Now, this next statement is truer than it's been for quite some time. We do realize that there's a large number of men and women who have joined us in the last year. And if you're in that category this morning at any one of our campuses, I just want you to know that we are very, very thankful for you. You're, a, you're an answer to our prayer. You are. We were hoping for you. But what that means is this is your very first stewardship month. Now, this is actually an emphasis that we've been having at this church every November for the past 47 years. It was started by my predecessor, Pastor Bill Good, in 1976. And I remember when Pastor Good and I were making a leadership transition, it was 20 years later. It was 1996, and at that time, he asked me if I thought Stewardship Month had run its course or if I thought it ought to be continued. And I said without hesitation, all the way back then, I certainly believe it ought to continue, and I still believe that. Many of our members would say that the principles that we study from God's Word on these matters have been Life-changing. They have been impacting us at the very deepest levels of our relationship with Christ and our relationship to His church. So so what are the components of Stewardship Month? Well, there's a Stewardship Devotional Guide that's been distributed at all of our campuses today, and I hope you'll pick one of those up. And I really appreciate our staff. It's worked very diligently to put all that together. There will also be every Sunday just a wonderful testimony from one of our members. Didn't you love the one this morning? From Matthew Lanham, wow, wow, about what the Lord is doing in some aspect of stewardship in their hearts and in their lives. And, of course, those testimonies, it's not about glorifying human beings. It's about glorifying a Savior who would allow those kinds of opportunities. And so thankful for those testimonies. Also, all of our Sunday morning messages will be focused on some aspect of stewardship. And we're going to encourage every person attending our church whether you're brand new or whether you're one of those who have been around here for for 47 years, to think through all that God has entrusted to you and then to make specific commitments about how the Lord would want you to grow in the days ahead. And there's actually a a QR code at the back of that devotional guide that'll take you to a stewardship um, commitment card. I hope you'll pay attention to that. And then the culmination of all of this is our annual stewardship celebration this year's November 19th. That's three weeks away. That, that's amazing to me. But that's the Sunday night before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving falls pretty early this year. And that'll be at the, the new building that's been constructed. I'm over at the fairgrounds, a great place to have this event where we bring all of our campuses together. And, and that event, it, it sort of functions like our church family's Thanksgiving dinner, except we don't have dinner. But, but we do have some pretty delightful appetizers and desserts and all of that. But but more importantly, that's an opportunity for our church thank- family just to corporately give thanks to our God. And friends, listen, if this church isn't a thankful group of people, there's something bad wrong with us. Would you agree with that? We, we have so many reasons. Spiritually, we have so many reasons physically to, to be thankful as a group of people. So it's important for us. And then the other aspect of, of that celebration it's just an opportunity that we have to commit ourselves to, to growing faithfulness in the coming days of Christ with Terry's coming. So I want to encourage you, go online, reserve your tickets, and plan to, to be with us for the stewardship celebration. And we often say it this way around here, let's work at being good stewards of Stewardship Month. Well, what even is stewardship? It's God-given responsibility with accountability. And that definition addresses one of the key misconceptions about stewardship, that it's primarily about money when it's not. Stewardship includes anything that God has entrusted to us. For example, our minds, the way we choose to think about life. Well, that's a a trust that the Lord has given us or our wills. The ability to make choices, that, that's a aspect of human life that has been entrusted to us. So there's the stewardship of our time or the stewardship of our tongues or of our friendships, of our spiritual gifts. This morning, the, the gospel, ministry opportunities, the, the list is long. So please don't think, well, I see what's going on here. The pastors are trying to get some final rounds of golf in before the bad weather so they don't have time to to write new sermons, so they're pulling out some old stuff because they're kind of lazy. No, 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 no. You could go through, this is true, you could go through an entire ministry lifetime and not exhaust all that the Word of God says about this subject and how it applies to everyday life. I mentioned a moment ago that for decades our church family has been reminding ourselves of these principles. So you could go to, to any member of the church. You might want to try it today. Just go to any person who's been here longer than a year and just ask them. Just, just stop them right in the hallway and, and say, hey, could you give me the four factors of stewardship? And I know every person who has attended this church could do that even before they would remember their own name. Am I right about that? In fact, we've got to try that right now. I had to just point some folks out and just ask, could you stand and give us the four factors of stewardship? <laughs> Let's not do that. But here they are. God owns everything. That was all about if you don't have a memorized yet, that'd be a good thing to do. And God owns everything. You own nothing. Secondly, God entrusts you with everything you have. Thirdly, you can either increase or diminish what God has given. He wants you to increase it. And God can call you into account at any time. And it may be today. Now, you might be asked: are you really saying that the church family reminds ourselves of those principles every year? Yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. Why? Because we understand the Scripture's emphasis on the power and importance of being reminded of key biblical truths over and over and over. We're not afraid of that at all. In fact, we saw that in our study this year of First and 2 Peter. There were several verses like this in those epistles, but one of them is this. 2 Peter 1.12, therefore, I will be always ready to remind you of these things. That kind of sounds like me right now. I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And I've been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right. So do I. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up. That's what I'm doing right now, just trying to stir you up. To stir you up by way of reminder. Now, my assignment this morning is to lead us in a study of the stewardship of our, our mission. And one of the key places in Scripture where we can learn about that is right here in Matthew chapter 28. So let's start in Matthew twenty-eight sixteen. But the, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they, they worshipped him. But listen to this. But, but some were doubtful. Isn't that amazing? Some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. So we're talking this morning about the stewardship of our mission. Let's think now about three characteristics of the task that Christ has entrusted to us. Well, first of all, we have to be submissive. Why? Because our mission is grounded in the authority of our resurrected King. Jesus reminded his followers in the very beginning of this commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I would suggest to you that that provides both a challenge and an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ almost immediately. And why is that? Well, it's because we're living in a world and a culture that has very little willingness to follow any authority of any kind. Is that right? And listen, we all despise abuses of authority. There's no question about that. But some, and perhaps many, have overreacted with theories that seem to suggest that all authority structures are inherently oppressive and therefore ought to be dismantled talking about things like critical race theory or some of the various abuse theories or the Minnesota power wheel and on and on and on. And I just want to say this morning that, that a church cannot be a mission-focused organization if philosophies like that take hold. It goes right back to what we've been studying in the book of Second Peter this fall. False teaching can rise up from within the church. And on the other hand, it's an opportunity. say, why is it an opportunity? Well, when followers of Jesus Christ joyfully acknowledge we have decided who our authority is going to be, it's our Savior, it's our Lord, it's our rightful King. And so we want to organize our lives around His goals and His purposes. Can you say that this morning, that that He's our authority and we want to organize our lives And our goals around his purposes. So we joyfully submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Even to some who may be doubtful. Verses 16 and 17 give that curious little detail. But the the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but (laughs) some were doubtful. That's a fascinating statement which, by the way, I think is another demonstration of the integrity of the Scripture. I mean, if the gospel writers were just making all of this up, what would have motivated them to include a comment like that? You also have to decide this. We, we can't know for sure. But, but we have to decide this. Is Matthew saying that, that one or more of the 11 disciples, and, of course, there's only 11 at this point because Judas has taken his life by this time, but, but is Matthew saying... That it was one or more of the eleven disciples that was actually doubtful at this time. And the reason I even raise that is because some conservative Bible teachers believe that it wasn't just the eleven disciples who were present when this commission was given. It may be it was as many as five hundred of the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. You may remember. Paul talked about that in the book of 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter in the Bible. He said, "For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but but some have fallen asleep, some have died." so, so the question is back to Matthew. Could Matthew have been referring to some of these 500 as some who were still doubting? The text just doesn't say for sure. Now, now we do know this. At various points, some even of the disciples doubted. You remember what Thomas said, right? John 20, 25, the other disciples who had seen the resurrected Christ when Thomas wasn't there the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But, but Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his sight, I, I will not believe, he said. If there was ever a be careful what you wish for a verse in the Bible, that, that's it for sure. But that's why we call him Doubting Thomas or the disciples on the Emmaus Road. That, too, was after the resurrection. They were surely doubting, at least at the the beginning of the interchange. But but here's the overall point. If I kind of lost you in in, in those details, here's the overall point. This amazing mission was given even to some who still had doubts. And I really do believe that there is tremendous hope in in that fact, even to people like you and me today. Say, Why do you say that? Well, you may be here this morning and you've not yet trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord. And I just want you to know if that's the situation in which you find yourself this morning, I'm so glad you're here. We're all glad that, that you were here. Here's an amazing statistic. Last Sunday, there were 23% more people here at our three campuses than at the corresponding Sunday a year ago. And just stop and think about it. That is an incredible blessing. But we also want to be sure that we're challenging every person coming to be certain that there's been a definite time in your life where you've admitted your need and you've placed your faith and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. And if you're not sure, my, 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 this week, I want to encourage you to get with one of our service pastors or, or get with somebody else who you know is a follower of Jesus Christ and, and make sure... And the Scripture does say, you can know for sure. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. That's 1 John five thirteen. You can know for sure. And friend, what we're studying this morning is another compelling reason to do so. Because then you would have the opportunity to participate in the accomplishment of the mission of our great King. Others I realize might be here and would say, well, I'm a Christian. I've trusted Christ. But honestly, if you look at the way I live, I'm pretty distracted. I have, I have doubts about this or I have, I have doubts about that. I'm kind of like the, the double-minded person in, in James 1. So my, my life's really not very mission focused, at least not on Christ's mission. Well, aren't you glad that that Jesus issued this command to people even when some were still in the process of figuring out what they believed and what they wanted to do? What that means is that Jesus will meet you wherever you are this morning. Now, now he has no intention of leaving you there. Don't say, well, Jesus is going to meet me in my hot mess and let me smolder. No, no, no. He's not going to leave you there, but he will meet you wherever you are, just like he did in this very text. Some were doubtful. Now, this authority is also an extension of the authority he demonstrated throughout his earthly ministry. So it's not like, well, now he has authority for the first time. No, 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 no. John MacArthur observed this. During his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrated his authority over disease and sickness, over demons, over sin, over death. Except for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus even exhibited the authority to delegate such powers to certain of his followers. He had the authority to bring all men before the tribunal of God and to condemn them to eternal death or bring them to eternal life. He had the authority to lay down his own life and take it up again. He has the sovereign authority to rule both heaven and earth and to subjugate Satan and his demons to eternal torment in the lake of fire. Satan's tempting Jesus by offering him rulership over the world not only was wicked but foolish because lordship of both heaven and earth was already Christ's inheritance by divine fiat. Here's the point. For a follower of Jesus Christ to to fail to acknowledge and submit to the authority of Christ, that that would be to ignore massive amounts of Scripture. All authority has been given to him. MacArthur also alluded to the scope. It's absolutely limitless. We're talking about authorities being given to Christ in heaven and on earth. That's why, say, why are people so pumped up about the mission around here? Well, it's because we believe it's eternal. It's not just involving regional events here on earth We're talking about being part of accomplishing what Christ taught his disciples and us to pray for. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All authority, Jesus said. This is why we are submissive people. It's because all authority has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. So what's that look like? Okay, Practically, if there's somebody from our church family who's on board with that aspect, they're submissive because they believe that Christ's um, authority is grounded um, in all He is and all that He does. So so what does that look like? Well, let's think about the the nursery workers and the childcare workers and the the youth workers that'll serve at one of our three campuses today or one of our ministries throughout the week. I mean, you realize that there's hundreds and hundreds of people in this church who are involved in that. I I never cease to be amazed at it. Not, Not only their willingness... Although that, in and of itself, is, is huge. But, but it's, it's the seriousness with which they take their craft, which results in serving the children of this church and our community with a level of excellence that's, that's really worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. But if you stopped any of them and asked them why, why do you do that week after week after week? Year after year after year for some decade after decade after decade. Why do you do that? They're certainly not going to say, well, it's because it's convenient. I'm just taking the easy way out. Or they wouldn't say because it's easy because I always know the answer to every question one of the young people has. No, no, no it's because they want to be submissive. Th- that's why They want to be submissive because they believe that this mission is grounded in the authority of their resurrected. They believe that. And friend, I just want to ask you, is that true of you? Is it true of you? Are you serving in such a way that can only be explained by observing that, that you're living for an authority other than yourself? And by the way, you're not doing it grudgingly, because you believe that your savior, he's worthy. He is worthy of your allegiance. Secondly, be focused because our mission fulfills God's redemptive plan. Focus on the the redeeming king part of this now. You know, one of the challenges that we have with the topics of leadership and authority in this day and age, whether we're talking about this war-torn world in which we live, whether we're talking about the current political landscape, that there's all sorts of examples of people exercising leadership, no doubt about the, the power that they wield. But in ways that are completely unrighteous, in ways that are destructive, that's certainly not true here. We're not just talking about a king. We're talking about a redemptive king. We're talking about a loving king. We're talking about a a saving king. Now, another observation we need to make is discipleship ought to be, it ought to just be a course of life. Many have observed that the word go, at the beginning of verse 19, it's actually a participle. And we don't want to get mired down in the the grammar. Participles can be used imperatively. In other words, a participle can be translated as a command. But this is why at least some Bible teachers prefer the translation of this verse, as you are going. Now, now either way, we, we can't prove that for sure, but either way, there's no doubt That God's people shouldn't have the attitude, well, I'll get busy about this disciple-making mission after I graduate. No. Because once you start playing that game, I'll get busy following the Lord's mission after X. There will always be an X, right? After I get married, after I get a job, after we have kids, after we kids get out of diapers, right? I mean, just after, 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 after. And there's listen, I've watched people live long enough, lived a fair number of years myself to know there's never going to be an easy time of life. Have you found it? Have you found the time of life? I have no problems. I have no difficult, no challenges at all. I mean, it's uh, no, there's there's always going to be challenges in life. There's always going to be something that's going to crowd out your participation in in the mission that our our Savior has given. It's a a course of life. We're talking about encouraging others to follow Christ. I mean, that is the mission. Go, therefore, and and make disciples. It's the word matheteo, the main verb. And the central command of verse 19 to 20, which form the closing sentence of Matthew's gospel. The root meaning of the term refers to both believing and learning. Jesus was not referring simply to believers or simply to learners, or he would have used other words. Methateo carries a beautiful combination of meanings. In this context, it relates to those who place their trust in Jesus Christ and who follow him in their lives of continual learning and obedience. So why? Why should we want to participate in the mission of encouraging others to follow Christ? It's because our God is a redeeming God. We love to be part of the process of men and women being redeemed. That's the story of the Bible. How our sin separated us from our holy God. How he in his great love and grace sent his son to die in our place. And now he's in the process. What's God doing today? He's drawing men and women to himself. And he's entrusted us with the responsibility of making disciples. And I just want to ask you this morning, isn't that the kind of God you want to be serving? From cover to cover in Scripture, we find the Lord moving to redeem people. So, what did the Lord do when Adam and Eve sinned? He could have done a lot of things. The Lord called to them, He's in the process of redeeming people. How does the Bible end? The Spirit and the bride say, Come. He's redeeming people. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who takes the water of life without cost. That's why so many of our church's ministries have some kind of evangelistic focus. Because we're constantly looking for ways. How can we build relationships on which we can tell others about Christ? How can we live out the gospel? How can we proclaim the gospel? That's why this church doesn't have church leagues. We, we don't have church softball leagues. We don't have church soccer leagues. We don't have church bat. We, we don't, I think church leagues are of the devil. And I might be a little bit opinionated, but why would you have a church league when instead you could open up to the community and have community leagues? So, so if there's anything that we're doing that can have an evangelistic outreach focus, we're all about that. Why? Because we want to be a mission-driven organization. How can we win as many people in our town to Christ as possible? Why are we uh, reconstructing this skate park? You know, we displaced the skate park. We had it there for 16, 17 years. We built it for a particular reason. Now we're building an athletic training center on top of it. And so we said as part of the planning, we're going to build a new skate park. So we put $200,000 aside for a brand-new skate park. And then, because of the, the grace of God, the city of Lafayette has chosen to give this church two hundred additional thousand dollars to make it a better skate park. And then the county commissioners came along and decided to give an additional two hundred thousand dollars to make it a, a better skate park. No strings attached. No strings attached. Just because they like what we're doing, they're glad we're willing to do it, and so they're enhancing it. Some additional funding has been given. That the skate park now. And most of this money is from outside of our church. Between seven and $800,000 being given, that's going to be a great skate park. There's no doubt about that. Why? Because we don't want anybody left behind. That's why. There's not a demographic that you could mention that we're not interested in. There's not any group of people that you could name that you could talk about, about which we would say, we don't want those kind of people around here. Do you agree with me on that? Because I can tell right now, we're not taking a vote on that. We want to be a mission-driven church. And so every group of people that we can possibly love, every group of people that we can possibly serve, any way that we can possibly build relationships in order to have meaningful conversations about the gospel, we are all in about that. That's why we had the trunk or treats yesterday. And I know trunk or treats sound a, a little goofy. We, we invested some money in trunk or treats. So there's no doubt about that. Why? We're just trying to love our neighbors. And we say, well, are our neighbors really willing to be loved in that way? They stood in a long, long line yesterday at each one of our campuses in order just to... And, and I really say, well, did, did anybody place their faith and trust in Christ at the trunk retreats? I, I don't know that anybody did. But I know this, you had a great opportunity to love your neighbor's. And when one of those neighbors has a question, when one of those neighbors has a need, where do you believe they're more likely to turn? It's to somebody here as a result of the fact that we just love them, love them, love Why? Because we're all about the mission. We're trying to serve our community every way that we possibly can. That's a trust. Do you believe that? That is a trust and a few would say, I hope nobody would. But if there's anybody from this church that would say, well, you know, if we reach those kind of people, that, that they're going to bring problems into the church. <laughs> oh, yeah? I've been here a long time. Most of you have brought some problems into the church. You know what I'm saying? Do you think you're all that in a bag of chips? Do, do I think I'm all that in a bag of chips? We're all problems. Are we not? We, we, we all bring all sorts of imperfections into the, the church family. And um, Pastor Good, used to say all the time, there's only one perfect person in this church. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's goal for the rest of us is that we'd be changing and growing and becoming more like him. And I'll tell you, it'd be a sorry, sorry day, a sorry day. If anybody in this church ever had the attitude about anybody in this community, we, we, we don't want to reach them. We we don't want to love them. We don't want we don't want to serve them. Wrong, 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 wrong. Why? You know we probably need to not have a glass pulpit. This is. Well, I just thought about this This is an occupational hazard right here. This thing that you have given me. (laughs) Why? It's because we love the mission, don't we? To be part of the plan of God, redeeming people and drawing him to drawing them to Himself. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself. That was a heavy lift. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, if we want to be. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God, don't you love this? Here's the mission. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then this beautiful summary of the gospel, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. There's the, there's the sacrificial atonement of Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I can't say enough about how thankful I am for the ladies of our church who were organizing this year's Taste of Christmas. You know, that, that, there's a good example, I think. That event very easily could have become inward-focused where a group of people could have said, hey, let's just let's do something and it's, it's going to be all about us. Gonna, that, the, the ladies who planned this event, they wanted that to be an outward-focused event from the very, very beginning. And I'm happy to tell you that the, the, the rate of people signing up for Taste of Christmas, it, it's exceeding anything that has ever happened before. One woman bought 24 tickets for her friends and her coworkers. She's going to invite everybody in sight. What's that? It's disciple-making. That's what that is. A 12-year-old girl was helping her mom with her table and eventually asked if she could have her own table to invite her teenage friends. What's that? That's disciple-making. And by the way, why do little leopards have spots? It's because big leopards have spots. And if we want our kids, if we want our kids to to be on fire about the mission God has given us than those of us who are older. <laughs> we better be on fire about the mission all of our days. Five of the table hostesses for that event are fluent in Spanish, so the speaking part of the concert is going to be translated for their table so our Spanish-speaking guests can understand. And by the way, we, we've actually had this, because uh, we do that for the Living Nativity too. And we had a person or two who said, "Well, they ought to learn English." <laughs> please don't ever say things like that. Please, please don't ever say things like that. It, why? Do you know how far God had to extend to save you? How far was it? It was a long reach, was it not? Could I have a mm mm-hmm on that, an mm mm-hmm that I would hear from the other campuses, mm mm-hmm on that? God had to extend a long, long way to reach every last one of us. And I hope that's resulted in humility, not pride. And I hope that's motivated us to, to want to extend the gospel in any way that we possibly can, any way we possibly should. We say it this way around here, the mission of Faith Church is to glorify God by winning people to Jesus Christ and equipping them to be more faithful disciples. And I would ask you, are are you faithful to the mission of disciple-making? When's the last time that you talked to someone specifically about the gospel? You, You encourage them to place their faith and trust in Christ. Friend, don't confuse I go to an evangelistic church with I'm an evangelistic person. And one of the decisions perhaps that the Lord would want many of us to make is to commit ourselves to more faithfully sharing Christ with those the Lord has placed around us in the days ahead. With a compassion on all the nations, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's always been the focus of God's plan. Even as early as the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, he wasn't just to be... Uh, the father of Israel, he was to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's Genesis chapter 12. That's repeated in this seminal mission passage as well. You'll receive Acts 1-8, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. Think about the power of that statement this very day. And in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth, That's why there's no place for racism in this church. There just isn't. Or for purposeful alienation of any people group. That's why we invest so much of our church's resources in foreign missions. That's another reason, by the way, I would encourage you to plan to be with us for our stewardship celebration on November 19th. Because we're going to be reviewing some of our efforts in places this year like Bolivia and the Dominican Republic and Mexico I'd appreciate your prayers as a team and I leave um, early tomorrow morning for a ministry trip to Japan. We're looking forward to that opportunity. Also, at our stewardship celebration, we're going to have the. I don't know that we've ever done this before, but we're actually going to do a, a formal missionary commissioning as part of the stewardship celebration. And Neato and his sons are ready um, to head off to Japan, and um, we're glad to be um, his sending church. Now, I should also mention all this costs money, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that I'm very, very thankful for the way our church family gives so generously and sacrificially. It was just last year that I had the privilege of announcing to our church family that $11.3 million had been raised in this capital campaign that our church family decided to have to build things like the, the new high school building. and. That one is coming up fast, or the new athletic training center, the the restoration barn, the the skate park that I mentioned, along with retiring all of our church's external debt. And I'm happy to tell you, it's one thing to make commitments to a capital campaign, right? Something else to write those checks. And I'm happy to tell you that um, our giving toward that capital campaign is all right on track, and our giving to our regular church ministries has stayed faithful as well. And one of the reasons I especially mentioned that this morning, it's interesting to look at some of the national stats regarding church giving. It's not good. And what some are reporting is that younger people and families are not giving at the rates that their parents and grandparents gave. That's a concern. Well, Stewardship Month gives us an opportunity to evaluate that as well And it helps us have the resources necessary to love the nations. There's also the importance of taking a stand publicly. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then what? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and baptism doesn't save, but it is a powerful public demonstration of what has already occurred in somebody's heart. And let me just say to you that if you're here and you know the Lord but you've never been baptized, there's another opportunity for you to have a conversation with your service pastor And he'll steer you into an Intro to Faith class. And if you've already taken an Intro to Faith class, but you've not yet been baptized, there's two church family nights yet this year where you could take care of that. And we would encourage you to do it as an act of obedience to the mission that God has given us with the goal of teaching to observe. There's no doubt that two of the most neglected words in this commission are the words to observe. Faithful disciples aren't just people who know things, they're people who who do things. And that's where biblical counseling comes into this. How do we take what we have in the Bible and apply it to practical, everyday life? In fact, when you think about this mission, the overall mission that God has given us, how does it actually happen sequentially? And we like to think about the four phases of gospel evangelism. It starts with the coming of the gospel. In other words, some missionaries have to go and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ to places that I've never heard before. Then many times the, the second phase is those who come behind and teach sound theology. So after a group of people have come to know the Lord, then it's a, a group of missionaries who are teaching sound theology. But then the third phase is how do I apply that truth to practical areas of everyday life? That's what biblical soul care, biblical counseling is all about. And then the fourth phase is then on that platform of a change and changing life, doing effective community outreach. It's amazing how many places we go around the world who would say they're stuck between phase two and phase three. In other words, they've heard the gospel, they've learned some theology, but they don't know how to apply it to everyday life. That's why we're asked to be involved in so many of these trips And that's why when you're trying to change and grow in your personal life, in your family, or the way you function at work, or our community, or our church, you're being a good steward because your life is on mission. Can you say that this morning? Or when you help serve at the Biblical Counseling Training Conference in February. So these principles can be given to a couple of thousand people who attend. You're being a good steward. And when you support these kind of missionary endeavors, you're being a good steward of the mission. And then what's the great promise with which Jesus concluded? You can be hopeful because our mission relies on our Savior's powerful presence. Lo, I'm with you always. Jump on a plane, go to Japan. I'm I'm with you always. Work in, trunk or treat. I'm with you always. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the, the end of the age. I mentioned earlier the Mission Impossible TV show, always ending with that description. As always, should you or any of your IM Force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. <laughs> Aren't you glad our mission is far different? Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Hey, I hope the message is coming through loud and clear. Th- this isn't an impossible mission. It's achievable. Where would the 23% come from? It's achievable because of the character and the wisdom of the person issuing it. He promised to build his church, and it's an incredible privilege to participate in the fulfillment of his mission to his world. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, Lord, thank you that you would use people like us, frail, imperfect people, but people whom you have chosen to redeem You've chosen to love, you've chosen to change, and you've chosen to use. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to think about the mission, um, to think about our level of commitment and faithfulness to it, to think about any steps that could be taken in the days ahead to, to grow in this area of stewardship. And, Lord, I thank you for the many. They're not here to glorify themselves. They, they want to glorify you, their king. But it's so very, very obvious that they love the mission.